Hi everyone, welcome back. If it's Tuesday, then this is The Delve. was audio from inside one of the world's largest and most notoriously violent and corrupt jail complexes, Rikers Island. This is New York City's main jail complex, where 14 people have died this year alone. Contrary to what you might assume about Rikers, it is not a prison for the most violent offenders of Gotham. It is a holding jail. 85% of the detainees on Rikers have not been convicted of anything. It is a place where they take you if you've been arrested for any crime and cannot afford bail, if you're awaiting trial, or if you've broken parole. Most of the people held on Rikers are non-violent offenders, and many suffer with mental illness. There are gangs, there is violence, there are some hardened criminals. There are also kids, like Khalif Browder, accused at 16 of stealing a backpack. He spent three years in Rikers without trial or conviction. Almost two years of his time were spent in solitary confinement. After the case was dropped and Khalif was released, he struggled with the trauma of his time on Rikers. An article from the New York Times says, He described being unable to rid himself of the fears that had consumed him in jail. He said he was afraid of being attacked on the subway. And before going to sleep at night, he checked to make sure every window in the house was locked. He managed to finish his high school equivalency and had started community college, but in June of 2015, he died by suicide. Khalif went to Rikers 10 years ago, but in 2020, Rikers took a dramatic turn for the worse. Since COVID, New York has seen what is being called a complete collapse of the jail system. Conditions were already horrible, and while they managed to get the population down for pandemic risk, the city also implemented an unlimited sick leave policy for the guards. The guards stopped showing up for work. On any given day, as many as one-third of the jailers were absent. It is something of a strike, though they are not legally allowed to strike. And it is because conditions are so unsafe and inhumane. The people who work on Rikers, much like the staff of many urban jails, are over overwhelmingly poor and black, they come from the same communities as the detainees. They complain that the surveillance cameras, recent lawsuits, and press attention brought against the jail for officer violence has tied their hands, and they don't have the tools to manage the facility. I want to be clear. Rikers is a dangerous place, and abuse by officers is a huge problem. And while instances of excessive violence by guards is all too common and needs to be stopped, this is a violent place because the system of mass incarceration is violent. Because it was designed to punish by violence. The people jailed on Rikers deserve a safe, clean, humane facility with a fair, expedient trial, mental health services, and access to their medications. Guards deserve a safe, humane, and clean place to work. It is the responsibility of the city and state and federal government to improve conditions, 
for both the incarcerated and jailers. Rikers is one of the largest jail facilities in the country, and there is currently a population of 4,800 detainees, down from around 10,000 before the pandemic. This is down from 20,000 back in the 1980s. In 2016, the Close Rikers campaign was launched to put an end to the violence and abuse at Rikers. The advocates pushed to close the facility for good. In 2019, the New York City Council voted to close the complex, and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio set up a plan to replace it with four smaller jails by 2026. While COVID obviously distracted the de Blasio administration from many of its campaign promises, it did allow the administration to reduce the prison population under the banner of public health. But he has been accused of neglecting the facility in the interim between now and when he proposes it closes in 2026. Nothing has been invested in fixing or closing the facility. It's yet to be seen what will happen under newly elected mayor Eric Adams, a former police officer. But for now, the people in Rikers, detained and employed, are suffering. I speak with Brandon Holmes, co-director at Freedom Agenda. We discuss the conditions at Rikers Island and why it needs to close. Hey, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us here at the Dell. Before we get started and jump into all things Rikers, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me, Chalen. Uh, my name is Brandon Holmes. I use he and him pronouns. And I've been organizing in New York City for nearly a decade now, and mostly with formerly incarcerated New Yorkers doing a lot of training and public education or political education around campaigns to reduce you know, forms of discrimination against people who are formerly incarcerated to improve the conditions of confinement in jails and prisons across New York City. And in general, just looking to build a base of grassroots leadership with people who've been the closest to the problem of mass incarceration. Wow. Okay. Let's just jump right into this. What is the situation at Rikers right now? Can you tell me about the situation there and, and, what's happening with the folks who are incarcerated. Yeah, so Rikers Island has been in crisis since its inception, right? It's actually named after the Rikers family who were associated with slave catchers. They would essentially catch freed Blacks and bring them back into slavery. So the history and the legacy of the island already, right, is an oppressive, toxic, vile place. But what we've been doing since 2016 is leading a campaign that would close Rikers Island permanently. And there have been past iterations of attempts to close Rikers, often led by the government or, you know, well-meaning advocacy groups. But this is the first generation of New Yorkers that has led a movement to close Rikers, led by the people who are survivors of Rikers Island and their families who are impacted by Rikers. What we've seen this year alone is 14 people have died on Rikers, whether from self-inflicted wounds because they were left in solitary or punitive segregation without anybody checking on them, whether because they were neglected and did not make medical appointments or any number of causes. What we know is that Rikers Island is mismanaged and isolated to a point where the nearest any advocates or, you know, uh, oversight bodies can get without being 
given the blessing of the Department of Corrections, who controls the island, is a bridge that is, you know, a deep bridge in uh, Queens, New York, a deep bridge that you can't cross unless you have clearance. You can't get through a security checkpoint. So when people are banging and screaming on the walls or, you know, shouting outside for relief, there's no one who hears those cries, except for the advocates who are trying to keep a line to their loved ones who are inside or the people who are coming outside, who we talk about on our campaign as survivors of Rikers Island. And, you know, one of my colleagues said it best, if New York City just had a day where all police didn't show up to work, if they staged some massive protests and said, you know, our work conditions are so bad that we're just not going to show up to work, we might actually have a pretty good day as New Yorkers. There would be less people being harassed, there would be less brutality, um, and there would be less people in black and brown communities or low-income communities feeling uncomfortable because they're being, you know, kind of monitored or surveilled on every corner of their neighborhoods. But when a corrections officer or someone who works in a jail or prison doesn't show up to work, that means people don't eat. People don't bathe. People don't get to medical appointments. People miss court dates, which could be their opportunity to be released from jails or prisons. So it really disrupts the system in a very terrible way. And the Department of Corrections is essentially held ransom by the corrections officers union, which is essentially saying, you know, we've got so many people calling in sick and so many people who don't want to show up to work on Rikers because the conditions are so bad that we're telling the union, we're telling members of the union, don't come to work there. It's essentially an organized strike or work stoppage. And when that happens, yes, as you said, incarcerated people are left with the responsibility of figuring out how the jail will function and operate so that they can continue to survive. What is stopping, I guess, progress to improve conditions at Rikers? Yeah, I think there's there's always going to be a wide spectrum of advocacy, right? And I think what we saw in 2019, when we secured a vote to demolish the 14 existing jails in New York City and replace them with four smaller borough-based jails. We saw there's a lot of misinformation being spread by people who want to be on the right side of history. There's a lot of, uh, I would call them neo-abolitionists. Myself, I identify as an abolitionist, but I grapple with the reality that, you know, many of my cousins, aunts, uncles, whether it be from, you know, gang interactions or drug sales and, you know, drug use, regardless of what the case may be, I recognize that abolition in New York City um, may not be achieved in the next 10 years. It may not be achieved during my lifetime. And there are people who are much wiser than me, much stronger organizers than me who have been working on this for generations to achieve this type of abolition. So when we saw a vote that would demolish 14 jails and reconstruct three jails and one new facility, there was a lot of sentiment that this was just a plan to build new jails. There was no acknowledgement that we actually are reducing, we're permanently reducing citywide jail capacity in New York City by 75% by following this plan and implementing this plan. When our mayor, our current mayor, Mayor de Blasio took office, the Rikers population was around 12,000 people. Last year at the peak of the pandemic, because of the interventions that advocates demanded and we forced the city to take on during COVID, we saw that jail population drop below 3,900 
for the first time oh, wow. in since World War II. Yeah, it, it was crazy to oh, say man. that we were able to achieve that type of decarceration. But this year, after bail rollbacks last year and the fear mongering from police unions and other law enforcement unions and district attorneys, we saw bail reform get rolled back. And now all dozens of charges that were not bail eligible at the time where we got our jail population below 3,900 are now eligible for pretrial detention again. And judges are using their discretion in this you know, post-vaccine world to put people in harm's way on Rikers. And uh, we have public defenders and advocacy groups who are making a strong case, right, with 14 deaths in less than 12 months on Rikers Island. Wow. We are making the case that Rikers is a death trap. And any judge or district attorney who requests that somebody be sent there, even pre-trial, is sending sentencing someone to death. Mm. But because of the way the system operates, right, we have to live in the world as it is and not as it should be. And the world as it is. Judges are abusing that discretion and ignoring all calls to assess people's ability to pay bail. They're ignoring all of that, and they're still setting bail as ransom to keep people behind bars when bail constitutionally was meant to be used to ensure return to court. So what we're asking for is that judges and DAs stop requesting bail, and they do two major things. One, really assess people's ability to pay any amount of bail that you would set in bail-eligible cases. And two, really determine the risk of flight, right? Mm, when we're talking right. about cases with people who are living in low-income black and brown neighborhoods, really let's ask ourselves this question, like, where would this person go? Where are the resources that right. this you know, person are, would are, have? Are they like flying off to Europe or you know, exactly. wherever? Yeah, and it's, if this person couldn't scrounge up $5,000, to get themselves off of Rikers Island or get themselves they're, they're out not of hopping zone. on a private jet. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's really just unreasonable that judges and DAs continue to perpetuate this myth, especially during a pandemic and a crisis in our jails where the people who have oversight of the jails are not doing their job. And that's resulting in dozens of deaths. So it is a crazy situation, but at the same time, We've, you know, got this thing to grapple with in our communities where there's a lot of black and brown communities who may see a slight uptick in crime or, you know, an increase in gun violence from the historic lows that we had several years ago. And they say, what I see in my community is that someone is shooting and right. I, I don't know what else to do other than rely on the cops or rely on the jail system to solve that problem. But what mm. we're saying is we need to completely disrupt this economy that's built on punitive responses to public health and public safety concerns. But at the same time, we need to recognize that we don't have the full solutions when someone is murdered in our communities. Yes, there is restorative justice or, you know, there's reparative programs that we can put someone into, but those all come with the acknowledgement that someone has caused harm. The person who has, you know, been charged with this crime has to accept the accountability and responsibility to participate in those restorative programs. And the victims also need to say, yes, this is enough for us. This is justice for us. And until we're able to move society forward to that, we need to recognize that every time in history we have reduced jail or prison populations or had campaigns that specifically focus on releasing people from yeah. jails and prisons, the conditions of confinement deteriorate. And we have people in the South, whether it's in the South, it doesn't even have to just be New York City. We've seen the examples of 
the jails that were, the prisons that were constructed on plantations in the South and, you know, men being head to toe, sleeping in their own urine and feces. We're seeing that on Rikers right now, as the population is half of what it was when this mayor took office and this mayor made a commitment to close it. We're still seeing those conditions deteriorate and people are being left there to die. So we can't just say we're going to close Rikers and we're not going to have any jails at all. We're going to go from 14 jails to zero jails. If there's a strategy to do that, we want to do that. But the challenge right now is moving forward, advancing and strengthening this plan to shrink our jail system and simultaneously improve the conditions and access to care and programming for people who remain incarcerated. I I just want to jump in and ask, Rikers is... It's a city jail, a county jail. Rikers is a series of jails. A lot of people Mm. talk about Rikers as one jail, Mm. but there are actually nine uh, detention facilities physically on Rikers Island. And then there's the boat or the Vernon C. Bain Correctional Center, which is uh, in the South Bronx. But it's literally it's a boat. It's a barge uh, that has a little over 800 beds. And it is all men at that facility. So when we talk about Rikers, we're talking about it's crazy, by the way. (laughs) I know it's literally a slave ship in New York City. That sounds crazy. And and so just for our listeners to understand, um, you know, some of the folks who are at Rikers or can be sent to Rikers. Are we talking like folks who, you know, is it like petty theft? Are we talking about more like intense things like uh, burglary and, and what's the spectrum of offenses that can land you at Rikers? Yeah, I mean, it is a very wide uh, spectrum of, you know, charges or situations that can land folks at Rikers. Largely, Rikers is, so the total population, uh, as I checked yesterday, was 5,448 people on Rikers, I believe. And about 4,400 of those folks are detained pre-trial. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they have low-level charges, but it means that um, they either have a you know, high amount of bail set on them so that they can't be released, or many of those people have also been remanded, which it means that a judge has determined there's no amount of bail that I would feel comfortable setting in this case. And given the evidence that has been presented so far, you are under remand, meaning you will not be released until this trial is concluded. But then there's also people who are there because they have a a parole or probation warrant because, you know, they violated the terms of their release. There's people who are being transferred to state prisons, but just because of the processing times and the administrative challenges, they have not been moved out of Rikers yet. There's actually people who are also serving sentences on Rikers Island. So it is a big swath of, you know, charges and possibilities that can land people on Rikers. But I can say without a doubt that about 85% of folks on Rikers, there are existing alternatives to detention, such as hotel placement programs or supportive and transitional housing programs that would allow them the opportunity to be under the supervision of a community service provider rather than in a pretrial detention facility. So there's many opportunities to continue decarcerating Rikers. And we've done some projections with the Center for Court Innovation, and the Littman Commission, which was tasked with coming up with the original recommendations on closing Rikers, that say we can get this city jail population between 2,700 and 3,000 people on any given day if we actually had the willpower from the mayor to do so. Well, one of the more interesting things is 
you guys just elected a new mayor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, we did. <laughs> so what do you expect to happen under the new mayor? Is, is this, you know, a reason for hope? Are we hopeful? What's happening? You know, I think that there is this really pervasive narrative around, especially with uh, incoming mayor Eric Adams, this pervasive narrative around we have to stop the main drivers of incarceration on Rikers, but nobody really being willing to point the finger where it should be, at judges, at prosecutors, who continue to send people to this death trap. Rather, you know, we hear Eric Adams sound bites on Rikers is, I, I think we need to, you know, reform bail. We need to go back to bail reform and make sure we're doing this the right way, which really just opens the floodgates for more rollbacks, which will be even more regressive than what we have right now. And then also, you know, he's a former police officer and he's got a lot of right. ties still to yeah. that law enforcement community. He has this idea that he wants to reintroduce plainclothes officers, officers who dress and look like us, but are carrying a gun and can't have the authority or the right. impunity, I should say, to treat us the same way that we see uniformed officers treating us on camera. And to me, that is like one of the most terrifying things that we could have a mayor coming in saying he wants to bring back this kind of like covert operation with the NYPD where they blend in with us at the same time that he tells us he wants to return to neighborhood policing. And I think, you know, it's this pervasive narrative that like law enforcement and making sure we are friends with our law enforcers or we recognize that they are our neighbors that that is going to change, that the system is innately corrupt and broken and will always protect property and, you know, agencies and institutions more than it will protect, you know, everyday people. So his, his other thing is that he says one of the major drivers to the population on Rikers is the number of students coming out of our schools with undiagnosed ADD or dyslexia, other learning disabilities, and oh, that could not be... Yeah, like, that could okay. not be further from the truth. Um, it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, like, definitely invest in education and, you know, mental health supports. But to think that, you know, going after our children and trying to, like, prod and poke them and research them to figure out the drivers of incarceration, like, we know what the problem is. The problem is the institutions that you create and uplift and continue to bolster when you increase the NYPD's budget during a pandemic where, half of New York and half of the country, the world maybe, was laid off and was collecting unemployment. Sure, but you want to yeah. continue to dump billions of dollars into these law enforcement agencies. New York City, we have a budget of upwards of, I think it's about 98, 99 billion dollars that we approve each year. And about 15 billion of that goes to the five district attorneys, the NYPD and the Department of Corrections. So we can literally say 15% of New York City taxpayer dollars is going towards these punitive failed law enforcement approaches. Meanwhile, so many of us are really, you know, hurt and continue to be hurt from the realities of this pandemic. So what we need to do is completely shift that to an economy based on care, right? Why are we not paying teachers and, you know, care workers the same that we pay or offer to these law enforcement agents? A lot of mm -hmm. folks say, well, we couldn't take money from the NYPD last year because it's predominantly women of color who are police in schools. And the big demand was to get police out of schools. But that means we lay off all these women of color. 
well, if you're telling us that you really care about these women of color, then the only jobs you would create for them to enter the middle class, to collect a city pension, to be a city employee with all these benefits for them and their families would not be as law enforcement agents. You would create jobs where they could heal and help nurture their communities. But there's this like myth that the only way for black and brown New Yorkers to enter the middle class out of poverty is to take a civil service exam and then mm. work in the jails or join the NYPD, you know? And I think that's one of the things we're going to see most challenging with this incoming mayor. And, and then you, you see these posters and these flyers all over, you know, the trains. Uh, it's, it's, they're everywhere. Come join the NYPD. That, that can't be the only gateway that we're offering, you know, to folks, um, yeah. you know, to join civil service. I, I like to end these interviews asking folks um, about something that makes them hopeful or optimistic about the future. Is there anything kind of on the horizon that makes you hopeful? Definitely. I think that we are coming off the heels of one of the largest grassroots moments in the history of New York, right? The defund movement right. Um, we saw in 2020 was massive. And, you know, whatever you say about the factors, right, that there were more people at home, there were more people kind of watching the news because they felt isolated and they wanted to be a part of something. Regardless of what you say, the energy is there. And we saw the results of that when we elected many of these incoming city council members who are some of the most radical and progressive folks that we could ever want on our team when going up against this pro-law enforcement mayor. So I'm really hopeful that we are going to see a city council that is prepared to take on this mayor and this administration. And I'm also excited that you know, there's not, there hasn't been a lot of turnover, you know, among the advocates that I know, among the formerly incarcerated leaders that I see running this movement, there has not been a lot of turnover with them to say, like, I, I say that to say there's a lot of movement knowledge and history that we've already learned and we were able to carry into this new council. So I think, like, while we are on track to close Rikers by 2027, and we've already transferred some land on Rikers out of DOC custody, you know, we're moving down the right path. It's just how fast can we continue this work? I, I think that's really the only thing that I'm thinking about. How fast can it happen? It's going to happen. The right. momentum is there. The, the political players are there. And the movement structure is there. So how fast can we make it happen? That's something to be hopeful for. Brandon, once again, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us here at the Delft. Yeah, thanks for having me. For sure. Thanks for tuning in. Next week will be our season finale. I'll see you then. This is The Delft.